on-demand coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. Friday, May 25, PFT PM, heading into Memorial Day weekend, a week that the NFL would like to forget, that's for sure. From the changes to the kickoff rule to the latest revelation about what the helmet rule is going to be to the anthem policy, I said earlier today this would be a perfect time for a bad news dump, but they they don't have any bad news left to dump. I got some good news for you, though, because I have just finished recording a full hour with Mike Pereira, Fox Rules analyst and former NFL VP of officiating. You need to listen to all of it. It's excellent. Some great stories, some input and reaction to a variety of things that relate to modern-day officiating. There were only a couple of things that I had on my list of things I definitely wanted to talk to him about, but we had, like has often happened here on the PFTPM podcast, it's a phone conversation that happens to be recorded, and both parties are aware of it, but at some point you kind of forget the fact that it's being recorded and you just have a conversation. So this is the latest example, one of the longest examples of it, a full hour. I'm going to answer a few of your questions from the standard bat signal procedure on Twitter, and we'll wrap this up on the back end, but I'm not going to linger for long because, as I said, a full hour with Mike Pereira begins now. Okay, PFT, PM Posse, get ready. Here he is. One of my favorite guys in the business, the former NFL VP of officiating, rules analyst now at Fox, knows the game inside and out, and has always been willing to say so. He's Mike Pereira. Mike, welcome back. How are you, pal? Good to be with you, as always, Mike. And, Mike, let me tell you, I remember the first time I saw you on NFL Network years ago, and you explained something concisely, clearly, and you acknowledged that something had been done that shouldn't have been done, and I thought, wow. Nobody does this, and that's the way you get credibility. So everything you've said, 99% of everything you've said since then, I've said, man, this guy is on it. I believe it. I get it. And you've been a great resource for football fans. So thank you for that right out of the gates. Well, you're welcome, and I appreciate those words. You know, I I feel like that if I indeed want to teach the rules and get people to understand how the game is officiated, that you have to admit when mistakes are made, that if you don't, if you try to cover them, if you wrongly suggest that the call is right, even though it isn't, then it's going to benefit no one. It does not benefit the officials. It does not benefit the people that are trying to learn the game. And so I've always felt the way to have somewhat success was to be honest and and to present it as simply as I could. And and probably I'm good at that because I'm kind of simple-minded anyways, and that's the way I learned the rules. And uh, so it's been a a fun venture over now what's been eight years, as a matter of fact. My God, I can't believe it's been that many years already. But it went from you to Carl Johnson, then to Dean Blandino, and now Al Riveron. So plenty of guys in that job. What kind of resistance did you get internally to being that candid? Because I can imagine some of the officials who feel like they're getting called out aren't happy with it. Maybe some of the other executives aren't happy with that kind of candor. Was it easy to tell it like it is? You know, it it never did bother me. I mean, I, I actually, you know, said to the officials before I left that, um, you know, same philosophy that, If they were right, I was going to defend them. If I couldn't tell if they were right or wrong, I was going to defend them. But if they they were wrong, I was not. But the way that I was going to say when they were wrong was to do it respectfully. I was not not going to use the word blown, horrible, miserable, those types of words that 
you know, some of us in this uh, in this business tend to use when we look at something, you know, in slow motion ten times and recognize that the call is wrong. I would say that, you know, that the call, and this is the way I approach it, the call was incorrect, and here's why I think it was incorrect, and 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 I think they respected that. Now, so in order to officiate in the NFL, let, let's face it, you got to have a big ego, and when you agree with them they praise you when they when you disagree with them even though you do it respectfully um they don't like you but the the fact that in my first game that i had back in 2010 was the the calvin johnson play against the bears that that the outcome was affected by the ruling of an incomplete pass in the end zone and i went on air and predicted that uh, gene sterator was going to stay with the ruling of incomplete caused an uproar even with our own announcers, Brian Billick, who said, no way that's going to happen. Well, they did stay with the call of incomplete. And the league then actually called me and loved it because it took the controversy off the back of the officials and put it on the rule. And so they were all for me at that point. But since then, through issues like lockouts and different things, uh, you know, I've fallen out of favor from time to time. But in my heart, I mean, I am still an official um, they still are my good friends. Um, I don't get to associate with them as much because I am a member of the media, but um, I don't think you can ever take the official out of me. When I let everyone know that you were going to be on with me today and I invited people to ask questions, I found a gif on Twitter of Tony Siragusa grabbing you by the throat <laughs> with a gigantic left hand. His left hand is as big as your head. What was going on there? I, I doubt that he meant, I, I, I assume he was demonstrating some sort of technique and he wasn't coming after you, but with him you never know. What was really happening there? Well, really that was his, I, I went down, this was a preseason game, and uh, when he was down on the field, so I spent the first half up in the booth and then I spent the second half down on the field with him, and we start talking about blocking techniques. And this was a response to what I was talking about, the elimination of the head slap. And what they don't show on there is when I took the slap at his face and got him in the face with a head slap. And then he came at me with the, uh, with the grabbing by the throat, which I claimed my head slap was legal. Um, you know, at one point, his grabbing by the throat was not. But <laughs> it, it has been humorous when I saw that. It was all in good fun. And Tony is a, Tony's a good guy, and we always did have a lot of fun when we were together. But uh, he's a much bigger guy than I, and I certainly was not winning that uh, physical altercation, that's for sure. No, he had you under control very quickly. Oh, my it's, gosh. Uh, it was definitely holding, by the way. I, I'm it looking was, at uh, it. It was, a, it was a good, solid penalty. It just pl is playing over and over again in my browser. And right <laughs> under it, I have a message from... From Amy Trask, the former Raiders CEO, now with CBS. She said, this reminds me of when I greeted Mike on the sideline pregame. I saw that. I saw Amy. Amy, uh, Amy and I had our run-ins, um, certainly, as the, the time that I was ahead of officiating and, and she was in Oakland. Um, pretty incredible because I really grew to respect Amy from my first visit when she actually sat me down and we started talking about illegal contact and she was upset at the way that it was being called and and i actually sat in her office and was really rather amazed because she really understood the complexity of the rules and we really had a of the rule of illegal contact and we really did have a good um, conversation but she was the one that somehow got a hold of my mobile phone number and i would say <laughs> at least 10 times during every raider game she would text message me about a call that she said was a blown call that hurt the Raiders. And if I didn't respond, then she'd just hit resend, 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 resend. And 
we used to laugh in the command center back in New York because if a call went against the Raiders and we saw it in real time, then we would say, okay, let's stop. Let's see how long it goes. Five seconds, there would be Amy. There would be the buzz, and it would be Amy. So she's quite the character. But, you know, to her credit, she really got over the tuck rule game quickly. She processed it well. She never brings it up all these years later. It's <laughs> impressive. Yeah, you're right. So did Bruce <laughs> Allen, by the way. Um, the uh, uh, I, I, It reminded me when I saw the gif of another uh, photo and a great photo that I, that I used to use all the time anytime we'd mention you. It's you and your in your officiating uniform, just getting chewed out by Bill Parcells. I mean, he looks like he's ready to do worse to you than what Sierra Goose is doing. I may have asked you this before, but for the benefit of the folks listening, what was it that prompted Bill Parcells to unload on you like that? (laughs) He wasn't unloading on me. That's what really upsets me the most. Uh, This was a Jets-Miami game, and uh, in the the fourth corner, a a pass to Corbett, and he – this is opposite side of the field from me. It's a fourth down play. We had the issues with the catch rule back then. He gets control of the ball going to the ground. The knee hits. He stretches out to try to get the first down. The ball pops out. I'm on the field. This is 1997. I'm on the field, and it was ruled incomplete on the opposite side of the field. And he went. He went crazy. He went absolutely crazy, and um, and and I get it. I mean, it was controversial. It was the game decider, and um, he he gave it to me on on our sideline because that's the sideline he was on. He gave it to me pretty good. But when the game ended, he took off across the field, going to the other official, the field judge. I was the side judge, and I was so concerned because he was so upset that he would do something that would get himself in trouble. And so I chased him. And when he got to the other official, I got in between the two to keep to keep Parcells away from Tom Sifferman, who was the official. Well, I didn't think anything of it. And then all of a sudden, this picture shows up the next day. It was an AP photograph. And what they did for space reasons they cropped it and they took out Tom Sifferman's picture and made it look like Parcells was yelling at me. <laughs> but he never, he never was at that point. And, uh, and it was incredible because to this day that picture continues to resurface. But, but I'll tell you something. Um, I, I was really impressed with the fact that, you know, I flew home back to California from Miami that Sunday night. And uh, the next day I went to work. And then I came home on Monday evening, and I had a voicemail, and it was Parcells. And he left me a voicemail, and he, he apologized for his behavior, for the language that he used that was directed at me initially. Um, he said that he had no excuse. He didn't expect me to forgive him, that he was ashamed. And I thought one of two things. Bill Parcells is either a really great guy or... Maybe I have the Jets again three or four weeks <laughs> down the road. And, uh, and, and so I, I looked at my schedule real quickly, and I had no more Jets games. So, in fact, it was the, the, the Bill Purcells, I think, that we all know and really do like. And, and uh, he's the old-school guy, Mike. And, and, you know, when he came back with the Cowboys, he called me and said, you're going to be really happy that I came back. And I said, why is that? He said, because I am never going to call you. 
And I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm never going to call you. I'm never going to complain about a call. I don't want any player or any coach that works for him ever thinking that the officials ever cost us a game. And he was true to form when he came back. Um, He was old school Bill. He accepted the responsibility. He accepted that he made mistakes. His players made mistakes and officials made mistakes. And the only time he literally ever called me was out of concern for an umpire that we had working that he felt that was not moving well enough in that position that he was going to get hurt. And, um, and that was the Bill Parcells that I know. You mentioned that that incident was sparked by the catch rule, which has been a plague on the NFL, it feels like, for decades now. But they think they finally fixed it. And I didn't even have this on the list of things to ask you about because there's so many other things that have happened <laughs> yeah, since know. late March when they fixed the catch rule. Do you think the catch rule will be now fixed given the tweaks they've made to it? Well, I don't. Um, and, and, and I don't because of instant replay. Um, I, I think instant replay does not belong in this area of the game. And, 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 and I say that because there, there really is a subjective element to the catch rule, and that is the element of time. And, you know, back when I officiated, you know, on the field, you know, it was, it was just so simple. And we didn't have replay, but it was just, it was just a blanket statement. You know, it's catches control with two feet down. And if there's any doubt, if it's close, if there's any doubt, rule it incomplete. I mean, that was basically the rule and the philosophy. But replay enters the game. And so now we go on to 1999 and Bert Emanuel and the play and, and the playoffs with Tampa Bay. He extends, gets control of the ball, the tip of the ground. The ball hits the ground um, because the ball touched the ground, even though he didn't lose control. Uh, it was reversed to incomplete. People didn't like it because it took away a great play. So we switched and said it's okay if the ball hits the ground, if you maintain control. We went down this huge slippery slope that involved replay. And I think they did some good things um, this year because um, the one main change was this going to the ground thing. And we heard it how many times last year that the receiver, whether it was Des Bryant before or current, the receiver did not survive the ground. Um, and that, that's, that's the element that became so confusing because the ground was the end all. If the ball came out after you hit the ground, if it came loose and touched the ground, it was incomplete regardless of whether Des tried to extend the ball forward or Jesse James lunged into the end zone. If you were going to the ground initially as part of making the catch, the ground was the final answer as to whether it was a catch or not. And now they have said basically that the football move trumps going to the ground. So if on the way to the ground you reach, you lunge, you turn, you've completed the process of the catch. If the ball comes out when you hit the ground, if you weren't touched, catch fumble. If you were touched, catch down by contact. That's clear. That's clear. The thing I do think, Mike, that is going to be the somewhat confusing element is the description of this element of time because they have added in writing now taking a third step and taking the third step now is 
is going to be in my mind, especially the receiver that's on his feet, is going to be the real deciding factor because that happens really fast. If you're an airborne guy and you control the ball right at the same time that your left toe is on the ground but just leaving the ground, then right-left becomes your third, and if you're hit, it's going to be catch-fumble. So I do think we're going to see more catch-fumbles as the unintended consequence of this, Um, but... In the end, I think it'll be better, but I just really think that replay, getting involved in this element of time and looking at it at a different speed, I would rather replay just look straight control in two feet and leave it at that and let the officials make the second part of the decision. But we'll have to wait and see. Hey, Mike, that's what I said late last year when this thing hit critical mass. The easy fix is you take the three elements of the catch rule as it was previously articulated, and all you say is first and second elements reviewable, whether you caught the ball, whether you got two feet down or another body part. Element three, that time element, it's too subjective. It's as subjective as pass interference. Just make that not reviewable, and you've fixed the catch rule. But, of course, they don't listen to me. Well, you know what? They don't listen to me anymore, Mike, either. <laughs> so we're in the same boat because I, I agreed with you then because I do remember you saying that. And, and I, I just think that, you know, I remember George Young saying to me, and I don't know if I've ever said this to you, but when we first brought replay back in 1999 and I was in the office, um, he was the head of football ops, and he was an anti-replay guy, and he had a manila folder, and, and you know, this had all of the replay documents in it. And, you know, in the manila folder, you got the little tag there, and you write on that little tag, you know, instant replay, not George. On the front of the folder, he wrote, the monster grows. And I, and, I, and I think that we are seeing that. I mean, he is a guy that could see this. And, you know, I look at, I, I'm an advocate of replay to a degree, and I certainly was an advocate when I worked for the league um, because we were to correct mistakes. But I think it's starting to outgrow its usage, and I think it's starting to get too technical. And we saw a lot of decisions made last year in the office in New York that shouldn't have been made. And I, I get it to a degree because Al Riveron and his, and his staff were thrust into the situation when Dean Blandino left and nobody knew he was going to leave. So were they really prepared to do this? And, you know, I talked to Dean about that. And when he first started making decisions, he had a tendency to become too technical also. And I think they, they learned two-thirds of the way through the season that they realized they were being too technical and they weren't staying to the basic premise of replay, which is you don't overturn anything unless it is 100% clear and obvious. So it got better, but as replay continues to grow and now it's going to be involved in ejections and, and all these different things, and New York is going to be making more and more decisions away from the football field, I'm becoming less of a fan of officiating, and I'm becoming even more less of a fan of instant replay. Um, So I I guess what that really means, Mike, I'm becoming more of a fan, and um, it just is not setting well with me. Well, Mike, there's another monster that's growing, and it's been 12, 11 days now since the U.S. Supreme Court opened the floodgates and or Pandora's box on legalized gambling. And I think one of the practical realities here, once the NFL digests this and comes up with a plan, 
it may be more officiating. It may be more replay. I think the NFL both has to create the perception that it's doing everything to get every call right and also do everything to get every call right. And I don't think that's going to result in less replay. And I think it is going to result in more full-time officials and other things necessary to make people think that, that they're doing everything possible to ensure that there are minimal mistakes being made. Do you think that that's where this is moving? Well, I, you know, look at, I just got to harken back to Tim Donahue and what happened with the uh, NBA and to Roger's credit, uh, Commissioner Goodell, um, you know, he came in to see me when that whole thing broke and he said, okay, the good news, this didn't happen to us. He said, but what are we going to do about it? Let's pretend like it did. And so we, uh, we looked at our entire program. And how, how could we ensure ourselves to the fact that we're not going to have the same type of thing happen to us? We looked at background checks, which were being done once every three years, basically, at the time. And we said that's not at all sufficient. Um, we've, got to, we've got to do background checks once a year on everybody and periodically, you know, randomly even more just so we can have this constantly happening. We were, we were sending out assignments the entire year's assignments. So, you know, at, uh, you know, halfway through the preseason as an official, you would get your assignments through week 17. And we said, you know what, that's not a good way to assign because not good to have you know, uh, four and a half months of assignments sitting out there. If somebody wanted to get to you in week 17, they certainly had more time. And so we cut that back to only basically three weeks. And so we looked at all that. And, and, um, and I certainly at that point have felt confident that nobody was going to have any type of impact on our officiating that might have any ties to any type of gambling thing. And it is proven out because, you know, even though we're legalizing something, it's been being done illegally, you know, for a long time. And so there could have always been that that possibility. I don't know that, you know, that full-time officiating really is the answer because, you know, if you're trying to deal with perception against reality, I don't think full-time officiating is going to make you any better. And I think what they did this year with the 20 additional guys that they brought in full time that was a PR move that was not that was not an effective move saying that you know here's 20 guys that are going to be in the office full time and not have any other job these full time officials had other jobs you know and and they maybe were used four or five times during the course of the season so i think that was more of a PR move if you want to go that direction you know, and, and I've said this forever, Mike, if you want to go that direction, I believe that every guy that wears the white hat that is the referee, that the, is the leader of the crew, I believe he should be full-time. But I think they should be at an officiating institute in the center of the country somewhere, maybe Dallas. I mean, they work six days a week breaking down everything together so that they do it all together and have consistent messaging and that they take those messages out to their crew of six guys, I think that might make things better. But I, I just don't know if this law is going to change necessarily the way that uh, that they that they hire people in terms of full time. And and I just I just think it remains to be seen what pressure they feel like they're going to be under to get even more calls right. They can do it all they want, but they're never going to get everything right. 
I mean, and, and replay will never will never have that happen, but we'll see. Well, I think back to that Scott Green incident from the Chargers-Steelers game. I think it was November 2008 when there was a late call. It was uh-huh. blown by Scott. It didn't affect the outcome of the game, but it affected the outcome of the spread. And there were AP stories about all the money that changed hands or didn't change hands because of it. And that's in an environment of illegal gambling. The more that it, it spreads and the more that it's happening, I can see the the congressman out there raising questions about whether or not the person who made the call was full-time or part-time, whether or not it was something that should have been subject to replay review. When you can find something that you can turn into a soapbox, if you're already inclined to be against gambling and you can stand up and you can shout that here's a flaw in the system that results in the hard-earned money of hard-working people changing hands over incompetence or worse. Of course, I don't think it could happen, or you'd like to think it couldn't happen now, that same situation, because of the involvement of New York and penalty enforcement. And uh, you would like to have think that, uh, that you know, at that time, I, I knew it was wrong, um, but at that time there was nothing that I could do and there was no contact that I had on the field. But you have a second step which gets New York involved. Interesting, Mike, you could – Scott Green involved in two plays, that one, and then he was involved in the play with the Giants and the 49ers back early on in my career in the office when, you know, 49ers committed blatant pass interference on a muffed uh, field goal attempt when the holder muffed the ball and the the crew got confused as to whether the Giant player downfield on the pass was eligible or not. Um, But two plays involving Scott Green and – you know which one I got more calls from, from irate fans? It was not the Giants game with San Francisco in the playoffs. It was the gamblers that lost their money. I had more people call me demanding that I pay for their season tickets for uh, Steelers games and for the bet that they lost because of the blown <laughs> call of the officials. It was amazing how they got my numbers, but they came at me out of the woodwork. Oh, they got it from Amy Trask. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> hey, I, you know, and as you explain that, Mike, I'm, try, I'm trying so hard to project what the world's going to look like. I think where this is going, you're going to see the league office exercise more control and maybe maybe chime in through that pipeline in real time when they shouldn't, all in the name of getting it right. we got to get it right. we got to get it right. We can't have a Monday morning scandal with $100 million that changed hands because of a mistake. And you may see that role expand, and you may see the actual week-to-week, game-to-game role go beyond whatever the boundaries may be. Well, Mike, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you um, on that, and, and I could see that happening too. But um, if we're going to do this, you know, why are we doing it, you know, in New York? Why are we doing it in New York with somebody making the decision? And I love Al Riveron. He's a great guy. But why are we making it, having a guy make a decision that hasn't been on the field for six years or five years or whatever, or having these supervisors or even having a replay guy that really never even officiated on the field in the NFL making a lot of the decisions, Al's right-hand guy? Why, why, don't, why don't we just take the huge step? Because this is all about looking at it, you know, on TV in replay, you know, and getting another chance to look at it. Why, why don't we just add an eighth official, for God's sakes, and put him in an enclosed booth upstairs yes. and let him have direct contact to the referee and just say, hey, that wasn't a face mask. He had the shoulder. Pick it up. 
Hey, Mike, I've been saying real time and get it done with and get it over with. And instead of going in some cases across the country, you know, to get an opinion from somebody that's, you know, sitting in the studio in uh, in New York, I'd rather see that at this point. You know, I, I, I always hated the fact that we were taking officiating more and more off the field when we when we went to instant replay. And now it's just like. I mean, Mike, I don't think I want to be an official. I mean, I I would think if I was a young guy, I don't even think I'd want to be an official when I got somebody yelling in my ear telling me what to do, which may be coming from New York. I've got replay buzzing down in situations where they're really by rule not entitled to. Why not just add an eighth official and put them on site and let him make the the decisions instantly? Um, I'd I'd feel much better about that than I do with the situation that the way it is right now. Hey, Mike, I think we're sharing a brain. Now, you're using 95% of it, but I've been saying for (laughs) years now, at least two years, put someone in the uniform, a member of the crew. Sure. Because it's no different than the meeting that they have when they huddle together after a play to get it right. And I remember there was a focal point several years back. Take the time, get it right in the first instance, and then replay is the fallback. So as part of that, you've got the pipeline to Gene Steratore. You've got a person who's part of the crew, and maybe you rotate. Maybe it's a person who one week is a line judge, and the next, maybe it's one every five weeks. I don't know how often, I don't know how wise it is to move people in and out of different positions, but somebody who is an official who can say, here's what I see, and this is part of the first ruling. Replay review is still there as a fallback. But before you finalize it, you have somebody who can immediately buzz the referee and say, pick up that flag or throw the flag or, or uh, no, he was out of bounds. Or, and it's all part of the first look. And you have the benefit of somebody who's watching the game the way everyone at home is because I think a lot gets missed when you're on the field versus sitting down watching a monitor. Listen, I, I remember one of Ed Hockley's games, and obviously he's moved on right now, but I remember one of his games not too many years ago, just a couple of years ago, but I was in the – in the in the center in in L.A. working the game for Fox and uh, it was it was amazing to me because there was a run up the middle and and the runner was amongst a lot of bodies and there was a face mask that was grabbed and twisted and turned and wasn't called um, and the you know the runner I think gained six yards or whatever it was but it wasn't it was missed and the first the first I mean it. It looked suspicious from the television angle, which is from above, but down on plane level when you're looking through the body, they didn't see it. I mean, obviously, if they'd have seen it, they would have called it because it was clearly flagrant enough that there was no question. So, anyways, they missed it. They spotted the ball. They chopped it in ready for play. And then all of a sudden there was a flag. And they and they called the face mask. And, you know, I knew. I knew what happened. I mean, one of two things. They either saw the replay in the Jumbotron or the replay official called down and said, hey, there was a face mask. And really, it was number two. And so it looked sloppy, but they got it right. And they got it right on the field with their replay guy in the booth. And and to me, that's a, a better direction because let me tell you the other thing. And I told Dean Blandino this to his face. Um, if it was me in the office... Um, I would not have allowed myself to make the replay decisions like Dean did and Al is now. And the reason that I wouldn't is because there could be a clear perceived bias 
that the person who is making the decision on calls that are given, getting overturned or getting, um, you know, whatever they stand, the person making the decision might have been the same person that was talking to that coach two days before who was upset about something, and then you find out about that, and here's a guy that makes a call that goes in this guy's favor. Or you make a call that goes in Dallas's favor when you, in fact, were shown getting off the Dallas bus um, at a, on an evening escapade, which is part of your job because you work with the competition committee and Stephen Jones is on the committee and this was not during the season. But why would the league want to put one of their senior league executives in a position where you could make the difference in a game in winning or losing? And that's why I would have not done it. More power to Dean. He felt strong enough to do it, and so is Al. But it goes back to me to saying, or what I feel is, the game needs to be played on the field. It needs to be officiated on the field. And if you go to replay, it needs to be in replay with either the replay assistant or the eighth official, which is what I prefer at this point. But I'm just not, um, as you can tell, I'm not – I'm not a fan of the direction that we're necessarily going in. Hey, Mike, let me take it one step farther. And I love Dean. I respect him. I thought he was great at what he did. But the Des Bryant play, right? All the criticism Dean took for being on the Cowboy Party bus, he's the one who made the call or consulted on the call where the ruling on the field was Des Bryant had the ball long enough to perform an act common to the game. I don't think that play should have been overturned. I don't think it was indisputable that he failed to have the ball long enough to satisfy the time element, but it gets overturned. And if it gets upheld, well, this is Dean Blandino paying off the Cowboys for that night on the party bus. And I hadn't really thought of it like that before, but when you're making those calls, you got a lot of different pressures ping-ponging around inside your brain. Well, see, I I always felt my role as the head of officiating, you know, my role was the buffer. I was the buffer between the officials and the clubs. And so, you know, if a mistake was made on the field, it was made on the field. And I would talk to the, you know, I would talk to the coach and I would say, yep, it was a mistake. And, you know, it's, I take responsibility. I got to train them better. I got to do these types of things, but I'm the vice president of officiating. I'm the buffer a little bit more difficult when you make the mistake. Now, you make the mistake, and you're the buffer, and, and, and Dean made mistakes. Um, you know, he was great, and he's great at replay. He understands it better than anybody. He's got – he's the new college czar now when it comes to, uh, to instant replay, which is a great move for the NCAA. Um, and he's great at – but he made mistakes. And so now you're not the buffer. Now you're the guy. And, and I, I just – I said it right off the bat. I mean, look, at it's just do you put yourself as a league when everybody talks about the Patriot bias, the Steeler bias, all of the bias, do you put yourself in a bad position by having one of your senior executives making those decisions? I think it's a no-win in my opinion. Mike, I'm sitting here looking at notes that I made of things I definitely wanted to talk to you about, and I haven't even gotten to them yet because this has been so fascinating. Let I never me for- shut up. I'm let sorry. Let me force myself to ask you about the main things I wanted to talk to you about. Let's start with the one that I think is easier, and then we'll move to the one that I think is more difficult. I think it's easier to understand where the kickoff rule is. Do you think the new configuration that they've come up with is actually going to fulfill this goal of making the play safer? 
I'm not ready to say uh, 100% yes, um, but I like the steps that they've taken um, because I don't want the kickoff to go away. And and I've said for a long time, can we try to make it more like a punt because we seem like we have less injuries um, on punts. And um, and so by putting eight men in eight men in the box, this 15-yard box, you've 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 certainly gone to that direction. Now it's. It's such a complex change. There's so many changes, um, you know, including the kicking team now can't get a running start, and of course the receiving team cannot penetrate that kick uh, receiving team's line at the 45 yard. They can't go beyond that till the ball is touched the ground or somebody downfield. Good luck officiating that, by the way. Um, that's a near impossibility. But I, I, I think they're all really good changes. Getting rid of the wedge. I'm really see. I know special teams coaches, and when they had all these meetings, I mean, they this kept them this kept them really significant in their roles. And, and I'm now interested to see what's going to happen. I mean, is this going to lead? Who gets the benefit here? Is it the kickers? I mean, are are now the re, the kicking team? Are they just going to blast the ball into the end zone? Um, you, you know, because they're going from a standing start, they're not going to get downfield as quickly. Um, am I a receiver? Am I going to catch the ball three yards deep in the end zone and maybe head up field and return it because I know that they were stationary? I, I don't know if it's going to lead to more returns or less, and that's what I'm really interested in. But this is such a dramatic change, Mike, that I do feel like at the end of the season they're going to look at two things, the number of kickoffs returned, and the number of injuries. And if the number of kickoffs returned goes up or stays about what it is at 50%, and the number of injuries go up, I think now they back themselves into the corner that it's done, and they will end up putting the ball at the 25-yard line. So to me, this is a last-ditch effort and a good one, and the next move is the elimination of the kickoff if, in fact, injuries increase either with the number of returns or the same number of returns. See, you mentioned putting the ball at the 25. Now, how do you simulate the onside kick if you do that? I'm a fan of the Greg Schiano recommendation from several years back of giving the the kicking team the ball fourth and 15 from their own 30 or 35-yard line. Then you can punt, you can fake it, you can put your quarterback out there and have him run the play and try to go for it, which would simulate the onside kick that everybody knows is coming. Do you think they would put the ball at the 25 or come up with a quasi-punt as the alternative? Well, I think, you, I think you'll have that option because you can't get rid of the alternative. Look, at you've got – it seems like there's a lot of so-called spring football leaps popping up. Um, the one I seem to really like is this new Alliance of American football that uh, Bill Polian and the Ebersols or Charlie's involved in. And, and um, I, based on you know some discussions that I've had with them – you know, they are looking at that same scenario. And so the league, I think, is going to get a chance to see it in operation because they're going to play, you know, 10 weeks um, starting after the week after the Super Bowl. So you're going to get some sense of, of how that will work. My, my preference still is to somehow keep the kickoff in the game, and I hope it does stay. But if it doesn't, I think what you'll see the Alliance of American Football do will be um, probably what the NFL ends up to doing. It seems to be from what I am hearing that this 
new football league of Charlies and Bills and the others that are involved, you know, is working somewhat with the NFL. And I think that they will be trying some things that the NFL may be able to look at, you know, to see if it will work in in um, in their game. And and you know, they're going to play as I said right after the Super Bowl ends. So the league, the NFL is even going to get a chance to watch it before they have their owners meeting in April so they can act upon some maybe significant rule changes seeing how they worked at that level. So, uh, listen, I I still hope that we see a reduction of the injuries and I hope the kickoff remains in the game. But certainly it's looking more and more like it might not. Okay, we've covered the big rule changes that we knew were coming or we knew might come this year. The one thing that has stunned me, it was proposal number 11 from a 10-item menu that the competition committee put forth. And I had a bad feeling about this one, Mike, from the first moment I heard about it, because the week before, and you know how this goes, the week before the the meeting in March, they distribute all of the proposals from the competition committee and the teams. They have a conference call. You have a chance to study it, write about it, assess it, give feedback whether or not they're going to accept it. At least we can tell the audience what's going on. And then I remember being in Orlando and somebody saying, oh, I'm, I, I, did you hear about this new helmet rule? It's like, what, what helmet rule? Well, the rule that you can't lower your helmet to initiate contact. It's like, well, that, that wasn't on the list of proposals. What well, was the 11th proposal? Well, there were 10. And it quickly became an Abbott and Costello routine. And they slipped this thing through. And everything about it since then, it just feels like, I don't know who's driving this, but it just feels like they're, they're trying to downplay the significance of this rule. I feel like this is a significant rule. As written, it seems significant. And they try to say, on one hand, it's not a big deal. And then others, like Rich McKay, will say it's a big deal. This week, Al Riveron made it clear that it applies in the trenches. What are your thoughts on how dramatically this rule is going to change the game? And does it seem odd to you the way they went about rolling it out? It doesn't seem odd, I guess. Um, Although when you look at the... May meeting, and you have two significant changes come out of the May meeting. They all they always seem to come out of the April meeting, but you have this one, um, and then the kickoff rule that came out of the May meeting also. Um, so it, it didn't strike me as being all that odd. Um, when I heard about it, I felt that all the hype um, about the players' comments and so many other people's comments, it's going to lead to 10 penalties a game, five ejections. Um, it, it's going to be the, the, end, the end of football. And, I, and, and it, it's, it's that, I, I knew that wasn't going to be the case. This reminded me of the going back, the rule they put in that the runner couldn't lower his helmet, and neither could the tackler. The cow tackler couldn't lower his helmet and, uh, and hit the runner. They had to line up. They had to be lined up head on, and everybody said, Oh, that's, this is going to be again. It's going to be. There's going to be 15 calls of these uh, every game, and, and it turned out the first year there was one called and it was wrong. The second year there was one called and it was wrong, and then I don't think there was any call for the three years after that. And I, when I first heard of this rule, um, I, I've been saying kind of the same thing. You know, it, it expanded this rule that you had in with the runner and tackler. By the way, they already have a rule in the in the rule book that's been there since way before me that you can't butt ram or spear. Um, it's it's kind of a similar type of rule that's been ignored for decades, but there is that rule in there. But when this one came out. I get it. It's going to be an open space thing, and you know, and if a guard comes, pulling guard comes out, and he takes on a corner and lowers his head, initiates the contact, 
you you can you can officiate that. Yeah, you're probably going to have some more penalties in open space, um, but still, they're not going to lead to ejections. And and you know, I thought, okay, I'm still okay with it, but I'm not okay now because I, I, what what Al said, and I think he has to say it because the rule basically says it applies to everyone everywhere. But to say that you're going to strictly enforce it in the box, so you're talking about tackle to tackle, um, that's impossible to officiate. I mean, impossible to officiate. Um, you know, for one thing, you don't even have an official in the area of the box any longer. I mean, the umpire is now 15 yards in the offensive backfield, and there is no way that you're going to see on the initial charge whether a down defensive lineman it leads with his head or did the it was how about the offensive lineman on a on a trap block? I mean, it's it's going to be impossible to officiate. And and what's the problem with something being impossible to officiate? It's going to be officiated very inconsistently because there are. Some officials that are better than others that see more than others, and you will have some that call it and may be right, and then you're going to have others that don't call it, and the teams are going to be upset because this got called this way one time and it didn't get called this way the other time. So I, 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 that is a, a big concern to me. But I'm still going to say and, and stay with where I was that we're a bit of an overreaction and I think that we're going to see some and this is something I never could say back in my days hey you'd put an emphasis of a rule in and boy bango you'd call them in the preseason and you know and you were making a statement and then in the regular season you hope that the players learned and you backed off and it doesn't become an issue I think the same thing is going to happen here um, and because it just can't be called right. And so you've got it. If, if some defensive lineman does, in fact, initiate the contact with the crown of his helmet and they see it when reviewing the film or it gets turned in, it may lead to a fine, and that's fine. But I, in, in terms of Armageddon on the field um, and this leading to many, many more penalties, I just don't see them called because I, I – and, and and I I know I was guilty, and officials will probably peer in my window right now and say you did this too. But I was involved in some rule changes that were impossible, near impossible to officiate. And and this is one to me that I think is even more so than anything I ever encountered. So let let's just hope that they keep the flags in their pocket when there's any question whatsoever, and let the league deal with it by way of fines afterwards. And, Mike, here's the thing I think they should be concerned about. And you would know better than me whether this has ever been on the NFL's radar screen. But when you look at the evolution of the game, especially over the last 10 to 15 years, and the sensitivity to safety after years of denial about what repeated head injuries could do to a guy over the course of his life, when you take them one at a time and one at a time, the game becomes so much different when you – put them all into play, and you look back 20 or 30 years as to what the game used to look like. And my concern is you throw this one on top of it, and at some point, this isn't football dying. This is the NFL inviting a competitor who will say, you know what, these guys all know the risks. 
We're going to have them sign a 50-page waiver. It's going to be a single-entity structure. We're not going to have any antitrust problems. We can say whatever we want. Everything's fine. And off we go. And we're going to play football the way it was played in the 80s and 90s. And there's going to be a segment of the fan base that is going to love it. And they're going to run from the NFL. And they're going to embrace a more violent, a more brutal, a more old-school type of football. And I feel like with each safety rule that the NFL adds, they're getting closer and closer to the point where some guy out there with a few billion laying around is going to decide to roll the dice, not on a developmental league, but on a head-to-head competitor to the NFL. Do you think that's on their radar screen at all? Uh, you know, I, I, God, I would say no. Um, I, I, it doesn't seem to me that they would think that way. I think here's, here's more of my issue is that I think they've made the game safer than it's ever been. I mean, I think the game right now, certainly for the time that I've been involved in the game, is – is clearly the safest it's ever been. Um, and and the, the problem is, Mike, do we really know how safe it is? I mean, are we judging the safety of players right now based just on the reported, and we're talking head injuries here, on the reported concussions? We know they're reporting more than they ever did before. So that's how you see some increase. But in the changes that have been made, do we really know maybe for 20 years and, and looking at a player 20 that played today, 20 years down the road, how is he doing to, to, to really understand if the game is safer? I, I, I get a bit concerned that, and, and I know the dilemma, but I get a bit concerned that you go a step too far to try to protect players, um, you know, really not knowing how much progress you've really made to this point. But, you know, uh, I applaud, and I, I will say one thing about Roger, and we've had our disagreements. You know, he has always been concerned about the length of a player's career, and he really does care about that, regardless of his thoughts about an 18-game regular season or whatever it may be. He he always expressed to me, and I knew by the way he talked to me, that he was concerned about the players. And um and, and I think he's demonstrated that even in some of his meetings with the competition committee, because I don't think personally, I do not think that this rule probably would have surfaced without a push by Roger trying to protect players even more. Um, and, and, and that's just my opinion, but I know how important that is to him. But, you know, I, I think the game is so much safer now than it was before, and I think history will point that out at some point in time. But will some renegade league, and it's interesting because I've never heard that um, that that kind of espoused before, Mike. Um, you know, would somebody like you say, we're going to go back to old-time football and do all the things you say, might, might they do it? Um, Geez, if it's your league, let me know. I might invest. That's a pretty good idea. <laughs> and here's what I think is going on, Mike. I think that fundamentally, and and I respect the desire to keep the guys who are playing NFL football safe. I think at some level this is about preserving youth football and reversing the 15 years now of damage that has emerged because mom and dad see NFL football and they don't want to let their kids play youth football. And so you have to make NFL football seem safer. So youth football will thrive and the pipeline will continue. Do you think that that is at the root of some of these changes, trying to get more parents feeling good about letting their kids play football again? Absolutely. I do believe that. And, um, you know, I was, I, I think that the NFL 
has to really have a responsibility to the game at the lower levels, you know, because at the lower levels is where it's suffering. You know, when you're going around the country right now and you're looking at high school games and high school football, which, you know, they don't have enough, in some cases, players to have enough players for a team. They don't have JV teams anymore because there's not enough kids playing. More kids playing soccer because their parents played soccer and it's deemed to be a safer sport. I, I really think that the league has an obligation to do that both physically and also when it comes to sportsmanship, which is why I was the president of the No Fun League and took a lot of abuse for it because I was the one that did not like the annex of Chad Johnson and Terrell Owens and pushed the competition committee who agreed with me to put in rules to not let players go to the ground and do these ridiculous antics that they do because I believed at the time, still do, that it was a sportsmanship issue. And, you know, you're not allowed to do it in high school. You're not allowed to do it in college. But it was okay to do it in the NFL. And I started seeing players in high school and in the lower Pop Warner games out in California doing the same type of annex because they watch their idols do it. And I, and I think you have that responsibility. And right or wrong, you know, I was adamant about I didn't think that kind of stuff belonged in the game. I'm in the minority now because I don't like the new rule that allows them to do it. Um, maybe is it fun? Eh, I guess it's fun. Um, do people not watch the game because they couldn't have fun before when it was illegal to do? I think they still watch the game. But uh, there, there's no question that the league has to be um, – it has to be cognizant of the lower levels because this is not this is not a trickle down. This is a trickle up. And if the game, you know, begins to dry up in the lower levels, it will work its way up. There'll always be an element of people that are gonna to want to play the game, but if it starts fading on the lowest of levels, it gets hard to support the smaller college teams and then, you know, you get less players involved. I think the sport becomes less popular. Yeah, I still think though there's always going to be scholarships available. There's going to be there's going to be very successful high school programs in Texas and Pennsylvania and Florida and elsewhere. And ultimately, there's only 32 NFL teams. So right. yeah, yeah, there's still going to be an abundant supply of potential professional football players. But I just think from the mission of keeping football as the predominant sport in America, you need to have a robust youth football program. All right, I've kept you for too long, but I'm going to keep you a little bit longer. Because I want you to tell everyone about a great program that you're involved in. It's called Battlefields to Ballfields. Tell us all about it and tell us where we can find out more. Well, you know, it's interesting. I just got back from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and just partnered with the state uh, association, the New Mexico Activities Association. We founded, my wife and I founded a foundation um, really two years ago. Um, we give scholarships to veterans to become sports officials in their communities. Um, it, it may have stunned some people to know this, but there is an incredible shortage of officials around the country on the amateur level. I mean, the pool is drying up. The average age of an amateur official is now 54. It's been on the rise for 10 straight years, and the number of people applying to officiate is less and less in this 10-year period. Why? Sportsmanship issues, they take so much abuse, um, especially in the lower levels with uh, with parents at the peewee games, but um, it's a critical issue. And so 
Um, I was fortunate enough to be exposed to some veterans um, through Jay Glazer and his group that he has, his MVP group, mixing players with veterans. And, and, and it struck me that in this day and age that we're running short of officials, that we've got veterans that are coming back from defending our freedoms and some of the skills that they have had to have to defend our freedom, uh, freedoms, you know, the, the ability to concentrate, courage, teamwork, focus, mission. I was driving to Oregon one day thinking about that, and I thought, why in the hell, when I was in the NFL, why didn't I put more of an effort to try to get veterans involved in officiating? Because that's what you look for in officiating. And so... I saw some of these horror stories of uh, stories of how these veterans sometimes come back. They leave their unit. They leave their team. They have no mission. They have no one to serve. And so we we've kind of blended the two together. And so we're giving scholarships to veterans to become officials in any sport, uh, men or women, whatever they want to do. Part of the issue is it becomes expensive to officiate now because you have to. You have to not only buy the uniform and your equipment, but you have to have liability insurance. You have to have all the training that goes, the local dues, the state dues. And so our foundation pays for everything for a veteran to uh, to get involved. And we started, Mike, uh, officially a little over a year ago in February, February 28th. And in our first year, we've given out um, 108 scholarships, uh, either full or partial, and, and we've as I say, just partnered with um, the state of New Mexico. We've got a little robust unit working out in Ro- out of Rochester, New York, that came out of an interview I did on the Buffalo Bills radio network. Um, it's just it's giving our veterans who are struggling in many cases, struggling trying to find their way, giving them a way to serve again by working with our our young athletes and being you know football officials, basketball referees. We even have out of Rochester, we've got an ice hockey referee, a guy that's come back and he's uh, stepping on the ice now as an ice hockey referee. So I'm I'm really proud of of our friends and people that have gotten involved in this. And and, um, I I must say, Mike, for as much as I enjoy enjoy officiating and trying to figure out what the hell a catch is, um, this has been – really the most meaningful thing that I think I have done in my 68 years. And um, I'm, I'm hopeful that in five years' time from now, we can have a 1,000 vets who have returned and are calling balls and strikes and, and guiding our kids in athletics. I think it's, a, it's, it's really a, a, a terrific project. Hey, Mike, I think it's great. And at a time when there's been so much talk about how people should or shouldn't respect the military or the anthem or the flag, one way to properly respect and honor the people who have served overseas is to help them in every way possible when they're making the at times difficult transition back to quote unquote normal life. So I support what you're doing. Battlefields to ballfields.org. Folks can donate. I'll run a link when we write up a story about your interview today at the website, and we'll do everything we can to encourage people to support it. Because it's one thing to spout off principles, Mike. It's another thing to roll up your sleeves and do things to help people, and that's what you're doing, and I admire you for it. Well, thank you, and I you know, and I appreciate that, and I urge people to go online. And a lot of people say, how can I help? You know, it's, it's not the money. I mean, it's a good project. I mean, you always need money for things like this, but you can really help by, by you personally. And there's so many officials that listen to you, too, you know, by, by just 
just recruit a veteran. Go out and find a veteran in your community and just say, you know, ask him, what about, you know, did you play sports in high school? Yeah, I played football. What about becoming a football official? Ask him. And then if you can get him involved, we'll scholarship, you, we'll scholarship him. And, and, you know, then anybody, anybody around this country can do that, to find a way to recruit a veteran and get him involved in something that gives him a purpose again. And for all the abuse that they take, and I said this in New Mexico when I was there yesterday speaking at a press conference, I want to be there when, the, when, this, uh, uh, when I have to pay to go see one of my guys work and he walks on the field before the game and he says, Coach, uh, Joe Gallardi here. Uh, I'm your line judge today. Uh, I had three tours of duty in Afghanistan, um, you know, 20 years in the Marines. Great to be here. I want to see the coach's reaction when, uh, <laughs> when he says that. And, you know, we need to upgrade the image of these people that work so darn hard trying to get calls right in real time and, and, and for our avocation, which, which really – Although some people think it should be a, a, a vocation before the avocation of as it is right now, if we can strengthen the image and get the people's, you know, people's respect level up a little bit for those that put their butts on the line to try to to try to officiate, you know, these guys are not going to be intimidated. I don't believe by parents or even coaches with what they've been through. So. Um, I thank you for asking me about that. It's a it's a great project. Yeah, and it really is a thankless job. I mean, when a good day is nobody noticed me, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's not that's not a job that's going to entail well, a, a lot think of about uh, that. attention. When you first walk on the field, you're already hated, and then it goes down from there. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Mike, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking all the time to answer these questions and and give us some insight. And we will support battlefields to ball fields as much as we can. And I look forward to doing this again sometime. Anytime, Mike. Thanks. All right, PFTPM Posse, thanks for hanging in there. And please support, learn more about, find a veteran in your community who can benefit from battlefieldstoballfields.org. And even if you don't contribute a dime, there's got to be somebody that you know who has served in the military and is back now and maybe is kind of struggling to find a niche. This could be his or her niche. This could be the thing that they do that gives them a purpose, that gives them a sense of structure. And also, it gives them that ability to be a part of something bigger than them, and they can get involved, and they can help, and it can be productive, and it can help them process whatever issues. And so many people who, who serve, especially in any type of combat, any type of hostile territory, even if they're never shot at, just being there and constantly worrying about what's going to happen any given night. It's a tough adjustment to come back to normal life. So this could be a way to help a lot of people. And I admire Mike Pereira for being involved in it. We'll be writing about it more at PFT because we want to help out this program as much as we can. All right. I, I'm tempted to just call it. You've asked some great questions today, but I, I just want uh, to let you all enjoy your weekend. But let, let me let me scroll through here and see if there are a couple that, that stand out, that, that are time-sensitive. Otherwise, ask them next week when things start to slow down again, and we can answer them uh, then. All right, let's see what we have here. I'm scrolling, scrolling. Eh, you know, Terry Gensler, 14. I mean, this is important to the weekend. Terry wants to know whether I use peppers and onions and mushrooms on my steaks. I, uh... Because Terry doesn't want to talk about 
uh, football questions. We're on the same wavelength. So he wants to know about grilling steaks. You know, when I'm out at a restaurant, I'll get mushrooms sometimes. But at home, I I don't need anything. I use the, the uh, who makes it? I see. I can see it in my head. Is it uh, McCormick? It's the McCormick Monterey Steak Seasoning. I blast both sides of the steak with that, and uh, I, I just cook it, and it's good, and I don't need any other stuff. So, I mean, maybe it would be better if I if I made it, but I like it the way it is. And I put the picture on Instagram of the four bone-in fillets that will be consumed at some point this weekend. They, you could pound nails with them. They're frozen solid. I ordered them from an online company that maybe at some point will be a sponsor of the site. I'm, should I give them any free? Should I give them some free love? Does that? It didn't work for Lego or Sheets. I don't know that it'll work for Omaha Steak. I mean, I don't know that it'll work for the unnamed company that I ordered these from. But uh, the bone-in fillet, we're going to try it out. And uh, not not inexpensive, that's for sure. But... It's my favorite cut. It's my last meal meal, and uh, we're going to enjoy it this weekend, so thank you for asking. Medium rare is what Honeywell suggests on Twitter, and anytime I hear medium rare, anybody who likes Goodfellas, what's the reaction? Ah, an aristocrat. I like medium to medium well. I don't like to pick up the steak and have a pool of blood on the plate. There's just something about that that I I don't need a constant reminder that I am consuming something that was once alive and and breathing. It's one thing to be alive like a plant. Something that was alive and breathing, I don't need that reminder. That's like when I get lobster, I don't want the carcass. Just bring the lobster meat and I'll pretend it's something other than that giant insect that for some reason is so delicious when you cook it. All right, now I'm getting hungry. I don't know what we're cooking tonight, but I'm getting hungry and it's time to cook something. Matt in Beantown, no more questions for me today. Just wanted to say thanks for continuing to make content for us. Adding an agency element to your products has put PFT over the top. Have a great Memorial Weekend grilling. Same to you guys and really same to everybody else. I could struggle to look through here to find some questions to answer. How about, oh, here's one. The Laughing Man 5, can you elaborate on what Kim Pagula said a bit more? I had no idea what you were talking about, but I also don't listen to much of the local sports because they all seem to hate the team. I guess this is a Bills fan. I mean, what I was saying about Kim Pagula, she recently made it clear that they're not going to be able to build a new stadium in Buffalo, and the lease expires on the current stadium after the 2022 season. Now, they can just stay in the stadium they're playing in. They can sign a new lease. Or... You know, this may be the Pagula's way of putting other communities on notice that if you're going to pay for all or part of a swanky new stadium, then maybe you can lure the team to your city. And, you know, this was the point that I made in the aftermath of the reshuffling of the Chargers, the Rams, and the Raiders. If public money is not going to be available to build stadiums in one community and it's available in another community, that team very well may move. And if an owner ultimately is going to be expected to build his or her own stadium and pay for it in one community that is smaller than another community, that has fewer people and money than another community, screw it. I'll just build a stadium in that community. Now, the Pagulas don't seem to be inclined or able to build their own stadium. And they... And Kim Pagula mentioned that the fans don't want to buy PSLs and they don't want to pay more for tickets. Well... If the public money isn't there, I mean, St. Louis had like 350, 400 million ready to go for a new Rams stadium. They, they may be disinclined to put that money back on the table unless they know they can get the deal done. 
But St. Louis has plenty of experience luring teams to town. They lured the Cardinals to town and then the Rams to town. And I don't know that I like the sound of the St. Louis Bills, but I initially didn't like the sound of the St. Louis Rams. And I was too young to not like the sound of the St. Louis Cardinals. So St. Louis Bills, I don't know. San Diego Bills, that would be weird. But all it takes, look what Las Vegas did. Las Vegas kicked in $750 million at a time when the Raiders weren't able to get one penny to build a stadium in Oakland. You show up with $750 million, it becomes a no-brainer. So all it takes is one community that says, we'll do it. We'll happily do it. We want to become a destination. We want to be a major league city. And we can either get a monorail or we can get an NFL team. All right. Oh, Matthew Farley, was that your dog on Instagram? This morning. No, but that's the dog that sources close to me tell me we may be getting within the next couple of weeks. Macy, the new PFT mascot. Hopefully it'll all go well. You know, something that is alive that has to pee and poop. I just, they, once you, they say once you get it trained, it's a piece of cake. But boy, I have a feeling that getting it trained is going to be an issue. And it may be that it's old enough. It may already be mostly trained by the time we get it. But uh, yeah, that, that looks like. That looks like you're going to hear some uh, barking in the background at some point when we do the PFTPM podcast. I may have Macy come in and uh, visit when we're when we're doing the podcast. Maybe yelp a little bit, bark a little bit, uh, you know, or just hang out. So yes, that's that's where this is heading. Matthew Farley, when West Virginia gets an NFL franchise, what will the team mascot be? Yeah, we're not getting an NFL franchise. Although there was a guy who was running for governor 20 years ago who wanted to try to bring an NFL team to Morgantown and. Back in 1998, I bet very few people remember this, when the Steel, I think the Steelers were scoping out possible locations to play their games if their new stadium was going to be on the site of Three Rivers Stadium. This was before they finalized the deal to build Heinz Field. It was right about the time this was all happening. And I remember thinking in 98, the Steelers had an exhibition game. They played the Falcons at Mountaineer Field in Morgantown. I remember thinking that there's a chance that uh, for a season, the Steelers may play there while they they tear down their old stadium and build their new stadium. Instead, they built the new stadium right next to where the old stadium was. But it's not that far from Pittsburgh. It's like 70 miles. And it would have made sense to do that for a year if it would have come down to it. But uh, we have had an NFL game. It's been 20 years. But I have a feeling that that that's not going to be happening. How do I feel about the posse taking over media in a few years? That's Alexander Sandoval. Do I put my name on it? On the PFTPM posse? I, look, this was all organic. Wherever it goes from here, who knows? I mean, I had no involvement in the rise of PFT Commenter, my internet son. This is at least something that kind of popped up directly under the auspices of the PFTPM podcast. So wherever it goes is where it goes. All right, that's it. I said I wasn't going to say much. It's been well over an hour. Enjoy your Memorial Day weekend. We'll probably do this again on Tuesday. Probably not going to do Monday. We'll see how Monday goes. Let's just not. It's Monday's a holiday. Let's do it Tuesday. Enjoy your weekend. We will be working at ProFootballTalk.com. And in lieu of the PFTPM podcast on Monday, I am doing PFT Live. And I told Stats to take the day off. So it's kind of going to be a radio version of PFTPM. In fact, that's what we'll call it. Monday's PFT Live is actually a morning version of PFTPM which I guess would make it PFTAM. 
either way, stats isn't in the building, so it's going to be more like this, although I'm not going to say shit and piss and damn or anything like that, or if I do, I may not be on the next day. Have a great weekend. We'll talk Tuesday on the PFTPM podcast, Monday on the PFTAM radio show. Have a great weekend. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.